Maybe I'm an American romantic, but my intuitions on human value and dignity extend beyond a naive conception of well-being. Ideas like freedom and personal autonomy are pretty high up on my hierarchy of political values. This ideal does not map well on the left-right dichotomy of current American politics, but rather puts me in the position of thinking, well, autonomously. I'm not comfortable with trading liberty for security, especially when the security is often not being delivered, even as the liberty is being sold off. Well-being in a more complete conception consists, I would argue, in a sense of personal security together with a sense of personal freedom. Today I'm going to bring up a moral problem which pertains to hypothetical conscious beings. Morality, it seems to me, is an explicit concern with conscious beings. For this reason, we do not worry over the suffering of carrots and green beans. Living organisms without nervous systems are assumed to be as non-conscious as dead organisms. But animals like us are assumed to be conscious, at least while we are awake or dreaming and not in a vegetative state. Thus, human vegetables and plant vegetables are equally non-conscious and equally outside of moral concern. However, the case changes if the vegetative state is determined to be reversible. At that point, the lack of present consciousness does not necessarily preclude moral considerations. Also, the level to which animals are conscious makes a difference to the morality of exploiting them for food or labor or research purposes. The common approach with non-human animals, especially farm animals and laboratory rats, is to be concerned with their well-being, that is, their comfort and lack of unnecessary suffering. Standardly, we give no consideration to freedom and autonomy when it comes to the exploitation of animals for our purposes, and perhaps this is a moral lapse on our part. A new area of concern is the potential for artificial general intelligence, which is to say sentient machines. The ethical implications of mistreating regular machines like cars and vending machines is non-existent, except as they are of importance to their conscious owners. This changes completely when we are talking about conscious machines. It will be critical on moral grounds for us to be able to determine whether a machine is conscious and what it is capable of experiencing. This is particularly disturbing to me because in the natural laboratory of the animal kingdom there is an evident convergence upon motivational strategies which include all manner of pain and suffering. The implication is that given conscious beings, the best way to get them to carry out genetic purposes is to torture them. We have evolved systems for making us nervous, and agitated, and desperate, and itchy, and heartbroken, and in terrible physical pain. There is no necessary connection between any given stimulus and the sensation we have evolved to associate with it. Obviously, fire causes severe tissue damage, so we need to be motivated not to stand in it. It serves a valuable genetic purpose that we are afraid of falling from great heights so that we don't go too close to the edge. In principle, we could achieve all of these same safeguards in non-conscious machines without the need for coercion. But maybe it's more efficient, in the case of conscious beings, to motivate them rather than to give them explicit algorithmic instructions. Consider a deep learning system which is tasked with figuring out the solution to a difficult problem. If that learning system were conscious, might it speed things along if each failure was attended by a sense of shame and suffering? I don't know. But it's at least conceivable. In that case, the engineers would be, would be bringing forms of conscious being into the world and subjecting them to all kinds of atrocities, like tyrannical gods. Once we know what consciousness is and how to produce it in a system, it seems to me that we should use it not as a blueprint for how to make artificial general intelligence, but as a line not to cross lightly. I think that consciousness is functional in human beings and other animals, but it isn't necessary for complex behavior and problem solving. Witness the robots that are being developed at Boston Dynamics, for example, or the chess-playing computers that can beat all the grandmasters. 
algorithms and computing power keep improving, and there is really no limit to what they can become capable of. So why make conscious machines? Today's moral dilemma is a bit closer to home. It concerns humans rather than animals or machines, but in a new area of technical research, the growing of human cerebral organoids in culture. I found a, a paper from last year called Human Cerebral Organoids in Consciousness, a Double-Edged Sword, by Andrea Lavazza. The author takes the position that these experiments are probably unethical. She starts by describing the technology. Quote, a human cerebral organoid is grown in the lab starting from an embryoid, tissue that has some embryonic features, obtained from ES or induced pluripotent stem cells. The nervous systems grow from the ectoderm layer of an embryoid. Ectodermal cells are placed in, into matrigel droplets, which provide nutrients, and floated in a nutrient broth in a rotating bioreactor. After 10 days, the organoid develops neurons. After 30 days, it displays regions similar to parts of fetus-developing brains. Lacking vascularization and consequently blood supply, brain organoids can reach about 4 to 5 millimeters across and remain vital for a year or even more. For different scientific purposes, scientists grow 3D cell culture systems of different complexity. They range from neurospheres, small clusters grown in suspension, to neural aggregates based on pluripotent stem cells by first forming an embryoid body, up to cortical spheroids containing only cortical neurons and astrocytes. And cerebral organoids are whole brain organoids that are models derived from pluripotent stem cells capable of producing organized structures resembling those of the human brain." Unquote. Now it seems to me that there is no critical difference between growing a human brain from embryonic stem cells and simply collecting a baby's brain and keeping it alive in a jar for medical experimentation. But human cerebral organoids are not human brains. The question must be, how close to a human brain do they need to be before they can be assumed to be conscious? Theoretically, researchers would want these organoids to be as close as possible to the in vivo structures they model. Lavazza writes, quote, Today, lab-made cerebral organoids already acquire structural traits of mature neurons, including dendritic spine-like structures, and researchers have recorded excitatory spikes in organoids grown for eight months, where monosynaptic connections were detected with high-density silicon microelectrodes. These findings suggest that brain organoids establish neuronal networks that can support self-organized patterns of activity. Also, Human cerebral organoids show the differentiation of photoreceptor-like cells endowed with proteins for light responsiveness. These photosensitive cells can respond to non-invasive light-based sensory stimulation. These steps forward indicate that it is possible to transmit afferent stimulations to cerebral organoids, and this has important implications, since so far one of the main limitations in the development of human uh, cerebral organoids has been precisely the fact that they do not have any sensory communication with their environment. A further step forward has been made with new methods of cultivation of cerebral organoids that have allowed to generate diverse nerve tracts which, with functional outputs. In this way, these cultures exhibit active neuronal networks and subcortical projecting tracts can innervate mouse spinal cord explants and evoke contractions of adjacent muscle in a manner dependent on intact organoid-derived innervating tracts. In other words, cerebral organoids have pr proved capable of inducing movement, although not yet of a purpose-oriented kind." Unquote. Well, human babies induce movements without much of a clear purpose. I guess babies in the womb begin to practice moving their fingers and tongues and feet around, too. It's weird to consider, but we originally would have had no means of knowing how to move. 
It's no different, really, than if we were to put your brain in a jar and hook it up to some kind of output devices. In time, you could make coordinated outputs of whatever kind the device is enabled. Presumably, you would do this to achieve purposeful objectives. When an objective was met, you might get a kick of dopamine as a reward. Of course, it's difficult to know what your objective would be. I guess it depends on your conditions. Perhaps you're trying to convey a message to the man in the lab coat peering ominously into your jar, his facial expressions exaggerated by the curved glass of your container. Of course, you would only know this if you still had your eyes intact, dangling tentacle-like beneath your frontal lobes. Lavazza writes, quote, A recent study showed for the first time that cortical organoids generated from induced pluripotent stem cells can spontaneously develop periodic and regular oscillatory network electrical activity which resembles the EEG patterns of preterm babies. This means that even in the absence of external or subcortical inputs, 10-month-old human cerebral organoids can develop according to a specific genetic program like all human beings and manifest a complex brain activity. The spontaneous network formation displayed periodic and regular oscillatory events that were dependent on glutamatergic and GABAergic signaling. The firing rate, up to 2 or 3 per second, and the kind of waves, gamma, alpha, and delta, are all a hallmark of a vital human brain. Indeed, a machine-learned model based on a preterm newborn's EEG features was able to predict the organoid culture's age based on the electrical activity of the organoid itself. In other words, the software found no significant differences in EEG between patterns of preterm babies and patterns of human cerebral organoids, unquote. Without a robust theory of the consciousness as instantiated in the brain, we have no way of inferring when our cultured brainlet is exhibiting a state of consciousness. For that matter, we have no way of knowing when a baby becomes conscious. We have no memories for our early infancy, but that doesn't mean it wasn't like something for us at the time, when we first learned to grasp and kick and suckle. People sometimes take it for granted that babies are conscious when they can respond to stimuli. This may or may not be the case. The reflexes that cause us to withdraw our hands from a hot surface are mediated in the spinal cord. It's only afterward that we experience the sensation. According to theories like IIT and TICL, there is no principle that should preclude human cerebral organoids from exhibiting subjective experiences. In any case, if this kind of research proceeds, it is bound to eventually encounter a real moral dilemma. Lavazza writes, quote, Moral status, in fact, is attributed on the basis of a being's intrinsic properties, and for living beings can be specifically attributed to entities that have subjective interests, i.e., interests in having or not having specific subjective experiences, and in not being harmed in a general sense. In this vein, subjective interests are generally linked to certain subjective experiences, or in some cases to the potential capacity to have subjective experiences, as it happens for unconscious-born persons to whom we are recognized legal rights and protection. However, we need to distinguish among subjective interests which are primarily in the moral domain and depend on the agreement of a specific community on some criteria, and subjective rights, which are established as duties for the agents who interact with the entity vested in those rights. So to obtain moral status, it is necessary to have, or to have had, or potentially have, some form of consciousness. Some may want to endow with a moral status a corpse as well. We obviously respect the dead, but their moral status seems not to be unconditioned and have different criteria. Secondly, moral status can be attributed based on various justifications, the most relevant of which include having a certain relevant moral characteristic or having a relationship of similarity or biological affiliation. In the case of human cerebral organoids, the necessary premise seems to be the possession of subjective interests, and therefore of some even minimal form of consciousness. 
If cerebral organoids possess this characteristic, this would not qualify them as moral as such. They would probably have to reach a certain threshold of complexity, as happens in the heated and controversial debate on which states of consciousness a human being must manifest in order to be defined as a person, who is in general deemed as the maximum degree of moral status. On the other hand, human cortical or human cerebral organoids are human by definition, as they come from human cells, and this biological affiliation could grant them a moral status. Now the biological criterion is contested as speculative and discriminatory in relation to other species, but the argument against the criterion of biological belonging is that other species also have sentience and therefore subjective interests. It seems therefore that having sentience could guarantee cerebral organoids a moral status." Unquote. You know, as I consider it, this kind of research provides me a renewed sense of the importance of discovering the neural and ultimately physical basis of consciousness. In a recent episode, I was talking about the value of basic research. Well, wouldn't you know it, a theoretical understanding of consciousness applies here to a pressing moral question. Before I leave this topic, I'm inclined to return to the premise that I made at the start of the episode. I said that human value extends beyond a naive conception of well-being. I made the assertion that freedom and autonomy are as important as security. When it comes to the moral considerations of future technology, whether conscious machines or human chimeras or brains in a jar, I'm not satisfied with the standard concern of preventing excessive pain and suffering. The implication is that the artificial intelligence or the brain in a jar belongs to the researcher or the engineer who is positioned in such cases as the parent to its technological offspring. I have children of my own, and I recognize, as parents do, that my responsibility to these people is not simply to keep them safe, nor are these children my property to be disposed of. I am not their master. I am their father. In both instances, the artificial general intelligence and human brains grown in vitro, the combination of cognitive ability and consciousness is where my concerns really lie. One could argue that a giraffe in a zoo enclosure is as well off as a giraffe on the African savanna. In fact, the argument could point out that the giraffes are better fed, live longer, and need not fear for predators. What makes this argument compelling to me is that giraffes, like cows and sheep, are pretty simple-minded. Perhaps in such cases, the moral imperative is to provide for their well-being in the security sense and nothing more. The same argument could be mustered on behalf of newborn human babies. The newborn has no interest in freedom and self-determination. It wants its mother to be taken care of and nurtured. But one day it will be a grown adult, drawn, drawn to seek its own path in the world, and who is anyone to say that it can't? It is often said that real communism has never been tried, or at least never achieved. The general pushback against this claim is that what happened in the Soviet Union in the 20th century, or in Mao's China, or in Cambodia, was the natural consequence of Marxist doctrine. Either way, I think there is something deeper that is being missed in the discussion as laid out there. The implication is that the problem with communism as it came to be practiced in such places is the starvation and the atrocities that occurred. Done properly, everyone's needs would be met. Everyone would have health care and a place to live and means to get from here to there and a state education. The society under such an idealized communism would purportedly be secure, be free from the sufferings of ambition. The deeper problem as I see it is that a perfectly realized communism without the starvation and the murder would fail to provide for the other half of the moral dichotomy, the freedom. Mind you, I am warning against all forms of authoritarianism. I'm not making a partisan point. If you are sympathetic to communism, consider what I'm about to say. We're all familiar with slavery as it was practiced in the American South, and anyone with even a modicum of decency can see that it was evil. 
It was an injustice that has made them more unpalatable because it was recent and because it occurred in America where all men are understood to be equal. My concern is that we do not mistake the problem of slavery with the way that its subjects were mistreated by their masters. To be sure, the beatings and the rapes and the separation of families and all those crimes were terrible, but there is something even more fundamentally wrong about slavery. Should we be satisfied with masters who treat their slaves well, who see that they are fed and have good shelter, who do not beat them or degrade them with harsh words? Obviously, we should not. The fact that there are masters at all is the moral disgrace. To be sure, we should rather be in a prison under a kind warden than a mean one. But wouldn't we prefer not to be a prisoner? Sign here and all your needs will be taken care of. Just do what you're told, go along with the program, and all your troubles are over. Live where we tell you. Work where we tell you. Think what we tell you to think. Read what we give you to read. Speak the words you are given to speak. You needn't make any more difficult decisions. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. Sorry, Your Majesty, but with all due respect, I decline. All this brings me back to the subject of this episode. We are coming fast upon a time in which we will be capable of bringing conscious beings into this world that have never existed before. It will soon be a question of what we wish to do with technology rather than with what we are capable of doing. If we blaze forward without defining and understanding our moral principles, we risk, what is it the kids say, being on the wrong side of history? It looks of late as if every human generation has been thusly accused by its successors, so why not ours? After all, we are the same sons of bitches who sold other human beings on the auction block, the same who hunted down and murdered their neighbors, the same who perpetrated the witch trials, the same who raided other tribes to steal their women. For once, we must stand for the best that we can be. After all, we are also the sons of bitches who signed the Declaration of Independence, who stormed the beaches at Normandy, who marched on Washington. The technology outpaces our imagination, but it must not outpace our humanity.